0: Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you, so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. Hello and Happy New Year. You know, I am not a big fan of winter, but I do like the refresh and the reset that the new year brings. The incentives of charitable giving are such that they are often aligned with a very busy December, and that is very true here at Donors Trust. But when the calendar flips, and then we can look ahead to all the exciting and the new things that we're going to do in the new year. And that is what I want to invite you to do with us today. Look ahead to your own giving in 2023. How do we grow our giving in this new year? What trends should we be watching for? And what lessons about philanthropy can we take from last year as we march forward? I am joined today by Donors Trust CEO Lawson Bader. I get the pleasure of working with and learning from Lawson every day, and I think you will value his insights as well. Lawson joined me way back in December 2021 on a Giving Ventures episode, and there we mostly talked about donor advised funds and some of the different threats that were going on in the philanthropic world. Today, we're going to look more at these trends in giving, offering some takeaways and insights that you can use for your philanthropic efforts. Lawson, thanks for being here.
1: Of course, Peter. Always happy to be with my colleagues.
0: <laughs> well, last year, the, at the end of 2021, the big story for Donors Trust was a major uptick in contributions received into donor-advised funds, passing the $1 billion mark in a year for the first time, which was very exciting. 2022 didn't have some of those major outlier gifts, and so it was kind of more return to normal on that side. But we had a huge uptick in grants going out from donor-advised funds. So talk to us about what that amounts to, and why do you think that was?
1: Peter, I think you're already uh, suffering the, uh, the comma problem. We did have almost $300 million in contributions, which... You know, it's pretty, it pretty significant. It's not too bad. It's not too bad. But, uh, um, you know, there are outliers like that that cause that. So we're quite proud of the year. But you're right. The big eye-opener was a pretty substantial increase in giving. And that's not just due to a single large gift that throws the data. It's, it's, it's the numbers of grants, the volume of grants. A couple of reasons. Um, one is that the reality is that people have been more charitable, uh, in recent years, in general, and our clients uh, reflect those, those trends. But, and I, I don't mean this to sound too political per se, but generally speaking, in various national surveys, sort of self-identified conservatives do tend to give more to charity than self-identified quote-unquote liberals. Um, and our donors fall into the former camp. Now, those statistics, frankly, are focused more on things like religious institutions or education or social services. And while we certainly do those things uh, as, our, as our clients do, our donor advisors fall into another subcategory that I think really does distinguish them from um, others. Um, and that is that they are motivated by belief that there need to be societal and political traditions that encourage wealth creation encourage innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, that encourage the ability of an individual to pursue something of value and encourage that to grow and to have what amounts to be a free society. And if we don't have these conditions, then we can't even have a robust civil society where individuals and voluntary groups of individuals will identify, address, and solve a problem. And so as a result, these donor advisors put their dollars into institutions at a local, at a national, and even international level. That are focused on defending or advancing these principles, you know. And in case you hadn't noticed, we do have some uphill battles to wage when it comes to regulatory, economic, budget, and social policy. And so our donor advisors put their money where their mouths are. Um, and you know, thanks to your work and and the team of some of others, we are growing anywhere from 50 to 75 new accounts every year. And on average, these new donor advisors are pretty active givers. So our busyness reflects their desire to utilize the tool that is a donor-revised fund to fund their own busyness of giving. And so that's, that's my explanation for why we had the big year. Yeah, I think it was, what, $242 million. Yeah, $242 million. And the previous year was like 190 so it's a pretty substantial increase.
0: It's a great uptick. So so you see a lot of the gifts going out, at least in aggregate. Has anything changed in terms of where those dollars are going? I mean, after COVID, we saw a big uptick in local humanitarian items and, and kind of a downtick in some of the sure. art stuff, and obviously a continuing ongoing thing with our donors on the think tank side, et cetera. Where does that balance out now?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's a complicated question. And I, I think, honestly, the answer is probably a bit nuanced. You know, on one hand, I would argue that, you know, our giving to local or humanitarian groups, uh, as you use... is a a constant and has been that way and reflects sort of my previous point that that newer donor trust advisors are broad category givers, you know, to churches, to synagogues, to local museums, to literacy programs, as well as sort of the big picture items of education reform and societal and cultural hot button issues that have a national market. So we still see a lot of grant requests that fall into that category. But, But on the other hand, you know, I'd argue that, Many policy organizations, especially those at a state level, have in fact become a bit more focused narrowly on local concerns, um, or they're at least continuing to focus on things like education reform, micro schools, um, local regulatory issues that affect local business, you know, family issues like adoption and parental rights, that um, uh, welfare to work concerns, local school board issues, you know, things that may have national implications, but directly affect their local donors and constituents. And some of these groups are also forming geographical alliances uh, that concentrate their efforts on their neighbors. And so this policy shift, or at least the new language that's being used to convey the issue comes directly, I think, how do you say, as sort of the COVID area concerns. But, but let me just add, and I know, Peter, you've heard me talk about this internally um, the last year, and I feel pretty strongly about it, that As you say, the policy focus of our donor advisors has also shifted somewhat away from D.C.-centric groups to state-based or even these sort of multi-state international efforts. Some of that was occurring before the lockdowns. Um, And I think, frankly, have as their origins frustrations with the fact that a sector of the United States sort of feels or it seems they're more hostile to conservative ideas, or maybe they're just frustrated the generations of conservative political leaders. And so this cynicism with national legislatures, with the growing frustration of say, sort of spending habits in DC, um, that DC itself becomes a wealthy city, somewhat divorced from the realities of the country. And I'm kind of reminded of the 1980 debate with Reagan, when he talked about, you know, are you better off than you were four years ago, obviously, it's, being aimed at Jimmy Carter. And I think many folks have sort of substituted that already better off now 30 or 40 years ago when a lot of these D.C. groups were founded. And I don't mean that to sound harsh, um, but I think the animosity towards Washington, D.C. is very real and very broad. And I think donors see an opportunity, or at least hope in giving locally international uh, where positive change may seem realistic. But the other last piece I think is important is if you throw into this, this COVID area migration that we have seen, that you yourself are are a part of, where many donors have literally moved to a different locality or a different state altogether. And consequently, state groups have a whole different pool of potential donors, right? Hello, Texas, hello, Tennessee and Florida. And that will change giving patterns. Um, And for some of these donors who've left states where maybe there was a weaker state-based policy charity, or they were in California where they didn't think there was much hope of anything, now they find themselves in a place where there's a great state-based group um, and that gives them that new charitable outlet. Um, and that includes getting to know the, no, the new neighborhood, you know, the food banks, the community theater, the job retraining, that sort of thing. And so all of this I think is playing out when you say the word local, it does have a lot more meaning today I think than it did four or five years ago.
0: So your il- answer illustrates the fact that there's a lot of groups out there doing a lot of stuff. <laughs> Donors have a lot of varied interests. It's, it's your job, it's all of our jobs at donors trust to stay current on what all these groups are doing, at least within the orbit of of our focus. Mm-hmm. For donors, uh, they can get a little overwhelmed by that. They, they want to stay current, at least current enough uh, with the groups they support, but they don't want it to be their job, right? They got other jobs to do. So what advice can you offer for donors listening who may want to do more to try to stay on top of the groups they care about without having to make it an all-encompassing job.
1: Yeah, well, I'm sympathetic uh, to that. Um, I think the first thing is take a break from the emails and the noise, and there's a lot of it. Oh my goodness, the number of uh, December emails I had for last-minute giving, even five minutes before midnight, I seemed to have five more as if I was going to make a decision in the last five minutes of the year. So give yourself a degree of grace Um, You know, you're a donor, you care about something so much that you're willing to part with something of value because of that care. But unless you are literally a program officer um, for a private foundation, as you say, you've probably got a day job or some other priority. So you need to know that you can't know everything that your favorite charity is doing. Um, And in your zeal to try to achieve some sort of grand poobah knowledge of a group, you also may wind up driving that group's president development director nuts. on the other hand, the CEO or the development director or whoever your contact is should be able to provide you with perspective or information. My suggestion is always just to prioritize your time, right? Save the email updates for a certain day of the month when you can read them. Sign up for that once a month or even that once a quarter call or the webinar that so many groups are now doing. You know, if you, if you feel it's a job then you may have actually lost your perspective a little bit on the division of labor. You know, your dollars or your time. Let's not forget that volunteering is also a piece of, uh, of uh, your overall giving that enables others with some comparative advantages to argue or defend or advocate or solve a problem on your behalf, even, even though it's an important partnership. So let me make a pitch. Um, you know, I'm a resource. Peter, you were a resource. You know, one of the benefits of working with a place like us is that we spend our time trying to keep up with groups um, so that you perhaps don't have to. Um, So ask us to look into something. Ask us to read a letter you perhaps received from a group soliciting a gift. You know, when you have an account with us, we are, in effect, your charitable staff to help you prioritize. Not only your giving, but keep you informed of anything good or possibly something bad about your favorite group. So recognize the resources out there to actually make your job easier so that you can get on with other things that perhaps are of value to you.
0: As donors are talking to some of these groups, maybe poking and prodding a little bit, particularly the ones they really care about, um, or even just scanning the emails, are there questions that you think get overlooked that don't get asked enough? I feel like I've gotten a lot of questions recently about fundraising ratios and that sort of thing. But maybe there's some questions that donors aren't asking necessarily uh, that they should be or should be looking for in these written materials. Can you think of anything?
1: Yeah, um, there are a couple, I think, that come to mind. Um, first is, you know, what are you actually trying to change and how and why are you different from an organization? I mean, that's a question you should ask to, to the CEO. You know, what is it you're trying to do? And how are you different from picking another organization? You know, as a, another question to ask is, you know, as, as a CEO, as a development director, you know, besides your own organization, name one or two organizations that you would support if you were like me, the donor, and only had so much, so much time, so many resources. Um, third question might be, what's the plan, you know, Mr. or Ms. CEO, um, when you no longer want to continue in your capacity? Um, If you could merge with another group, who would it be? Um, And what would it bring you that you currently don't have? And is that something that you should pursue on your own? Or is that something that maybe the group should pursue collectively? You know, and then lastly, ask the legacy question. It's an interesting one. Um, You know, if my only option as a donor perhaps is to leave a large gift and and you the donor can define what large means, um, you know, why don't you ask the CEO, what would you do with that dollar amount when that happens? Get them to think strategically for a bit. And don't, frankly, accept some general answer about, well, well, we'll just hire more people or we'll just print more copies. But you know that legacy question, we've had a couple of account holders that have sort of done that with no intention of dying. There's, there's years left before this is to happen, but it's actually uh, been a good tool for getting that donor or the donors to sort of see how their favorite institutions are reacting to that kind of a question. And it's a surprise for those that you'd think would be better prepared than those that would not. So those are some questions that I could think of that are worth asking.
0: And the flip is true as well for those nonprofit leaders who might be listening, be ready for those sorts of questions to be able to answer the question of, what would you do if I, me, major donor kicked the bucket tomorrow and left you with $5 million? Can you move the needle with that? Or are you going to be unresponsive to that request? Or are mm-hmm. you going to give something that's not inspired and ultimately turn the donor off? All of which we've seen in some of these exercises you referenced. It's just been really enlightening. It's been very
1: painful, Peter, to be in meetings where we're looking at the person saying, and if you were to receive X, what would you do? And you get a blank expression like, Oh my goodness, that is fundraising 101. So uh, it surprises me how often groups are actually not prepared for that.
0: Yeah, I'll throw one on too to to this question of things that donors I don't think ask enough is ask the nonprofit leaders to really distill down what the value proposition is sure. for what they're trying to do. Uh, Lawson and me and, and our team have a lot of meetings with a lot of different groups, and uh, and they can't all do that. They yeah. can't all get that small sound bite, and you know maybe saying it's an elevator pitch is a little trite, but. You still need an elevator pitch.
1: Well, if we can't help them, we're not going to be able to help our donors help them, So right.
0: And there's some great groups out there, and I still don't understand what they do <laughs> uh, because they can't necessarily boil it down. And uh, and maybe that's more a reflection on on me and my own ignorance. But uh, so switching gears a little bit to some of the the legislative trends, you know, we spent a lot of time, as I referenced at the top of the show. In 2021, 2022, talking about the threats, the potential changes coming to philanthropy, uh, and to date, we have seen absolutely nothing change in the <laughs> regulatory and legislative world. Uh, even that big mess of an omnibus bill that got passed at the end of December didn't have a peep of changes in terms of philanthropy. Even some of the good ones that, that we might have thought we might see.
1: Uh, so well, it was uh, a little long, so we're not it, quite it, sure that it, that's true. Who knows it. what's
0: actually <laughs> in there? But uh, but we don't think they were in there. But so. Have we been crying wolf all this time?
1: <laughs> well, I uh, never cry wolf when Congress is in session, um, period. Uh, I never underestimate, I think, the power of envy to corrupt even the best intentioned regulator or activist. You know, these calls for reforms, as you mentioned, as we talked about previously, you know, of donor-advised fund providers or private foundations, um, these various giving pledges, you know, to sign, they only grow stronger. Um, And they're magnified by social media and, frankly, a very unsettled political class. And when we combine that with, frankly, poor economic conditions, likely even a recession, then that envy only grows exponentially. And so, Peter, you've got to remember, first rule of policymaking, right? Clearly articulate that there is a problem and define it. Well, if you get people on that page, then anything can happen. And I think much of the noise of the last several years has been exactly about that. Right. Get people on board with the perceived problem, the notion that philanthropists are not really givers or they have too much money, um, that their wealth comes at the expense of somebody else. Uh, that private dollars directly result in diminished public revenue. That's been a big, big part of this. Um, that private dollars you know, directly results. Um, but no, the privacy, that's what I want to say, the privacy. for donors, um, really only extends perhaps to church tithing and animal shelters, but everything else is on the table. So I'm afraid there has been some unfortunate progress on this. Now, bills die when Congress adjourns, but the reality is the majority of those same members of Congress come back to Washington a month later, and that's where we are right now. Um, And let's also not forget the IRS did just recently sort of issue its priorities for 2023, and donor advised funds are definitely still on the list. And the IRS is about to get beefier and toothier in the next few years. So no, I I do not rest easy that we've somehow come through unscathed. Um, People are just too unsettled, too nervous, too angry. We've got razor thin political margins between majority and minority. And that may be a positive if the government is sort of divided, but it actually means that individuals can get picked off when it comes to a vote, and you only need a few to determine a certain outcome. And I can't help but say, but Sheldon Whitehouse is still in the majority of the United States Senate, um, and while I do believe he's misguided on some things, he still has a bully pulpit, has not given up with his attacks on donor privacy and donor intent, especially with those who disagree. So everything is still there, so uh, we're going to keep calling Wolf because the Wolf is getting bigger.
0: All right, we'll take a real left turn here because that's enough to drive uh, someone to drink. And so let's talk about <laughs> drinking. So, so people who may who don't know you, Lawson, may not realize that you are a true whiskey aficionado. I'm glad you um, didn't
1: say I'm just a drinker. That was going to be an interesting <laughs> switch.
0: Uh, and you know your scotches in particular, but you know all the brown liquors are fair game. <laughs> so, so a question for you: I read a Wall Street Journal piece the other day that said that you know bourbon used to be a workman. St- drink uh it was really affordable and over the past decade decade and a half it has become way more expensive doubled in price (laughs) etc do you think bourbon is overhyped in america today
1: oh that is a that is a softball teed question to a Scottish single malt person but i will i will show my diplomatic side um uh, two things. One is the popularity of all whiskey, and that includes bourbon and single malt and others. That You are right that the price has gone prohibitive in some ways. And that's, frankly, uh, we've had a few decades of tariffs. Um, and you throw in the fact that people were at home for a few years and either discovered the drink or discovered that uh, hiding and sequestering some of these bottles that, drew, that made the price go out of whack. And those of us who've been looking at bourbon and whiskey for many years, there's been a lot of eye-rolling about what cost me $30 three years ago and now costs $300 and it's not worth it. So all to say that I think there's a value placed on whiskey. There's a lot of creativity that comes in with it too. But um, yes, bourbon is the poor man's whiskey. I can't can't let that one go um, untouched. Uh, Single malt is where it all started. There's sophistication. There's joy. Oh, don't get me going on the accolades about all of this. But as far as I'm concerned... If anybody appreciates whiskey, let them start with bourbon and we'll become more sophisticated and the world will be a better place because of it.
0: All right. Well, I will I will leave the response for that to our colleague Lucas, uh, who <laughs> lives in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, and may have some some choice responses for all that. All right. So diving back diving back into the philanthropic yeah. world, you have and, and still kind of being more personal though, you've been a donor's trust for seven plus years now with the helm. I'm curious, with your own philanthropy. Because uh, you've always been a giver, you've always been generous in your own way, uh, in, in both in your time and your dollars. Have you started to view your own philanthropy differently in the time that you've been at donor's
1: trust? That's a that's a really good question. Um, I mean, the the CEO of Meek says, "Of course I have," but the reality is, yes, it's it's unavoidable. Um, I think in a couple areas, um, legacy. You know, I think uh, I realized there were times I felt, bit very, I felt a great hypocrisy talking to various clients of ours about the importance of legacy and wills when I myself didn't quite have my house in order, um, and that is something that uh, my wife and I sort of took care of updating and completing a family trust and putting things into play so that, um, frankly, a portion of our estate will be going to our Donor Revised Fund account at Donors Trust, and sure enough, Um, Cynthia and I have made modifications to our internal documentation we have here as to what may or may not happen with with that. So I think, like like many people, we will likely be making more substantial gifts after our death than we do during our life, but we're at least now set up to do that. Um, You know, secondly, um, Cynthia and I opened up Novus accounts with both of my children when they graduated from college. I'm not sure they were expecting that, but it's like, hey, great, here's some money that is now yours to distribute because it's important to for them to tangibly recognize that giving, as I have said, doesn't have a comma. Um, and so they themselves are contributed slowly and perhaps modestly into that. So that was something we felt very important. I was glad to have the opportunity to do it. And then, you know, thirdly, as I think about it, I have a certain appreciation as I see my children age and, and, and become full-fledged adults and pursue their own interests and things of how the nuance and depth of donor intent is not something that's, well, it's, it's nuance and it's depth. Um, you know, I am similar to my children in many ways, but we are different in terms of our experiences and our thoughts. And that makes our family life rich. But it also gives me pause every now and then about what is their role to be in my charitable legacy. And that's not at all being critical of my kids. I think that's just the natural evolution of it. So those are some things that if you were to have asked me seven years ago, there's no way I think I would have brought any of that up naturally. So it's been a good uh, learning experience for me as well.
0: So kind of wrapping up here, looking ahead, any big predictions for 2023? We don't really know how 2022 wrapped up in the broader philanthropic world. We, it was kind of on pace, I think, to be an even bigger year than 2021. And the late year stock market stumbles, et cetera, inflation, I think have, have shimmied some of that around. But what do you anticipate as you look to 2023? Yeah,
1: it's, um, I mean, I, the older I get, the more I realize that I don't know about what's going to happen. know, um, I'll be honest, I and this is just me personally speaking, that I, I probably am less optimistic about a lot of things than I used to be, but I do remain quite hopeful. You know, as I look at Donors Trust, I'm I'm certainly hopeful that our our own donor advisors will continue to give back. I'm quite certain that they're going to. They're going to utilize their accounts to help their favorite charities, especially if we are going to hit a recession, where perhaps those additional funds in their accounts will be more important, um, and I think will benefit organizations. That's a positive. You know, I remain hopeful that I, I think we're going to see an increase in this Conversation about donor privacy with a lot for the C three world that is from a wide range of groups that that um, are ones with which I maybe personally disagree philosophically, but I do feel there's a stronger alliance now around the privacy issue that I think is is very important and will continue to grow. Yeah, I remain hopeful that we're going to see a lot of international giving, um, a lot of our international organizations that are not just sophisticated and perhaps effective with their tactics, but they're also bringing change and more a more free society at a time when I think some people in the U.S. might be going backwards. So there's a positive trend. You know, I remain guardedly hopeful that we're going to see some changes when it comes to the larger education reform issue, you know, growing anger from all walks of life, all socioeconomic backgrounds and philosophical approaches about sort of the current U.S. system of K through 12 education and Frankly, the realization of how many administrators and how many, but not all teachers and certainly government leaders have unintentionally and intentionally perhaps decimated a generation of children. And I think we're already seeing a great many groups, a great many dollars going into mental health-related questions, micro schools, education disruptors, online community learning, you know, and the like. Um, I'm I remain hopeful that I think we're going to continue seeing an increase in giving to groups that are frankly, focused on vocational training, you know, apprenticeships, alternate career paths, than simply attending college. Um, There is both a practical need for this and a significant demand. Um, And it's one of those areas where many people of ideological persuasions agree. So there's some positive things happening there. You know, if I look at the investment side, which for the big picture is something I would completely stay away from because I don't think any of us can predict what's going to happen this year. But putting on my donor's trust CEO hat, I'm hopeful that as we see some of these alternative investment options you know, to the ESG kinds of conversations that those same groups begin to develop some financial viability and some staying power. Um, early adopters may fall away, some of the secondary ones may actually start to grow, and that we may be able to offer those ourselves to our donor advisors um, internally. And then, lastly, I remain completely optimistic and hopeful that the Washington commanders will be sold, and my hometown team can regain some tarnished glory back. But um, and I'll stay away from baseball for the uh, sake and respect of the one who's hosting this podcast. Right, that's
0: that's probably best for, <laughs> particularly given your home team, the, the Nationals. Um, well, Austin, this was great. Thank you for sharing time, sharing these insights. I think there was a lot of a lot of really good information there for people to to think on and as they approach 2023 and hopefully continuing to grow their giving and finding new ways to achieve some of those different things that you've you've highlighted, particularly there at the end. There's a lot of policies and a lot of good ideas that need philanthropic support to be successful.
1: Yep. Well, thank you very much. And I guess I'll see you in a few days and we'll leave the porch light on for you. Thanks, Lawson. Well, it
0: may be unpopular say, but I am optimistic about 2023. I know that there's a lot of doom and gloom talk out there, but perhaps the doom and gloom talk is why I'm optimistic. There are a lot of opportunities that come in times of hardship for the charitably inclined. It forces organizations to look at problems in new ways, and Lawson highlighted some of this, you know, changing way that donors are thinking about how they're approaching problems. I wonder if that applies to you. You know, as Lawson highlighted, there is no lack of important issues for donors to engage with. In fact, as he was rattling off some of those issues there at the end, I realized we've covered a lot of them in past episodes of Giving Ventures. And so if one of those topics was of particular interest to you and your charitable goals, I encourage you to go back through past episodes and find some of those topics and where we interview some of the great philanthropic leaders who were doing the hard work to advance liberty in those issues. As Lawson said, if we at Donors Trust can be helpful to you, uh, from assessing grants or looking for more streamlined ways to give, we are always happy to have that conversation with you. Reach out at Tell Me More at DonorsTrust.org. We'd love to hear from you. We will be back with more great topics and great guests very soon. Subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. Until then, thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon.